These are the dialogues of a peculiar character. My name is Thomas Gideon. Join me in chasing my peculiar passion for beer and brewing through conversations with the amazing and curious people who work in the beer industry. I look forward to sharing with you the fascinating stories about how and where beer is made and served, whether that is mere minutes or many hundreds of miles from my home. In this episode, I feature an interview with Keith Kaur of Waradaka Brewing Company. This is one of two currently operating farm breweries in my home county, Montgomery County, Maryland. They'll soon, as you'll hear in the interview, be joined by a third, Elder Pine, that is right nearby. Waradaka is a multi-generational farm, an area institution. It's a horse farm. The current generation is adding into that ongoing aspect of the business, a tasting room, and a brewery with a very vibrant feel and incredibly warm hospitality. I heard about it when they opened a little over two years ago, more because of the scenery and the surrounds. And I have to agree with my friends who got up there before me that it's worth it just to take in the beautiful setting. However, Keith is no slouch on the beer side and the beer to a one have been fantastic every time I've gone up there. By the time you hear this, they will have celebrated their second anniversary in a party that, in a word, was fantastic. Unbelievably, they basically held a party not once, but twice on the same day. I think probably a nod to the constraints on the size of their tasting room, but also something about the energy and enthusiasm of the family and the staff there to undertake uh, an incredible celebration and then reset and invite folks in to do a whole other round at that same level of high energy. This was also on the first snowfall of the season. Thankfully, the roads weren't too bad getting up there and especially getting home. If you get a chance, if you're in the area or visiting, to go out to Waradaka Beer Farm, I unreservedly recommend it. A couple more things before we get into the interview. I have I think in the last episode and maybe previously spoken about a bit of Maryland state legislation and gotten the bill number wrong. May not bother you, but it bothers me a little bit. When I've said in the past 1238, what I really meant was 1283. This is going to be important, and I think something that we'll talk about thematically over the next couple of episodes, especially denizens to wrap out the season, because there has been a very strong move to reform in the state and a good deal of optimism and industry backing to hopefully overcome this regressive legislation in the form of 1283 with some progressive reform legislation that will raise or eliminate many limits on the industry in this state. Lastly, just a production note, there is a little bit of mic handling noise, especially when Keith is talking, and I apologize for that. I've done what I can to minimize that and definitely have learned from that experience in terms of mic placement. Doing a lot of these field recordings is a learning curve still for me, and each time my hope is really both that the content is worth putting up with uh, my learning as I go, as well as each successive episode getting better and better. 
I'm at Waradaka, speaking with Keith Kaur about the story of this brewery. Keith, to start, can you introduce yourself? Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Keith Kaur. I'm a head brewer and, and co-owner at Waradaka Brewing Company. Um, I kind of run, you know, in a small business. We all wear a lot of hats, but my main responsibility is uh, running the beer program at, at Waradaka. So why brewing? How'd you get into the beer industry in the first place? Man, it's a it's a fun time to be be in the beer industry. That's for sure. Um, you know, I drank craft beer in college, but not you know it wasn't it wasn't what it is now. You know, I drank Sierra and things like that. But um, you know, uh, me and my wife really you know found ourselves in in downtown Ellicott City. You know, really you know at, at the Phoenix, really exploring a lot of different uh, beer. And that was kind of where we tried the most variety. And, um, yeah, she surprised me with the homebrew kit and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, um, it's, it's a cool, I love cooking, you know, and, and it's relatable to cooking and, um, you know, I think craft beer lets you really experiment and you can make some really quality, you know, we can make a nice Hellas lager, you know, we can make the, the classic stuff too, but kind of get to experiment, um, you know, with different farm ingredients and, and different local ingredients. It's a, it's a really nice way to, um, you know, combine art and science. I have some, I have some math background and, um, I think I'm some more on the artistic side than the science background side of the brewing, but, um, yeah, it just kind of combines a lot of the, a lot of things I like, I guess. So why pro brewing in particular? So that explains like your taste as a brewer, and getting into home brewing, but why pro brewing? So you did some time at Flying Dog. Yep, yep. What what led you there? What? Yeah, I mean, um, I was at a kind of a crossroads. I was um, I was living in Elkett City and driving to Northern Virginia, driving to uh, Arlington to uh, teach teach high school, and that was that was not sustainable. Um, so it was either change counties um, for teaching and teaching Howard County and Montgomery County, or um, you know, start. I'd already been homebrewing for a year, loved it, and um, my now wife was pretty supportive of me. Um, you know, starting starting at the bottom of a new career, but um, you know, kind of just she was supportive, and and it was something I wanted to learn about and try. You know, with no real, this was never the end game with that. You know, this kind of happened deep into that um, flying dog experience, and and you know, it's it's been amazing so far. But yeah, it's just it was just something that why not work for a brewery? And, and when Flying Dog called me back, you know, it's, why not work at Maryland's biggest and, and one of Maryland's best breweries, you know, um, definitely taught me a lot and um, very successful. And again, they experiment with, with ingredients too all over the place. And, and that, that was fun for me to see how even a big brewery can be flexible enough to kind of experience, experience, experiment with some smaller ingredients and different stuff. Did you pitch any ideas for the brew house rarity, or was that after your time? So that no, we program sure where did. They had I have to employee ideas informing some of those yeah, more experimental yeah, yeah. beers. Uh, my wife's idea was, well, I don't you know. It's crazy that there's not a beer with old Old Bay in it. Um, so we pitched. Uh, you know, we pitched a. I looked I, the way. You know, the the coming of that is is I looked up beers and salt. You know, and found Goza. And Goza wasn't really being done. Um, kettle, the whole kettle souring thing wasn't really happening yet. And uh, yeah, we I kind of pitched that, and you know I, I was I was pretty green at that time. That was pretty early on in the brewery rarity. I think it was the second year of the brewery rarities, and uh, I kind of let uh, that was kind of the 
I didn't really, I had hands in writing the recipe, but I, my bosses were kind of, you know, fine tweaking everything. But yeah, that was kind of, that was that. I think they give like royalties now, which I'm not, I, I kind of missed that boat, but and maybe I should have held on to that idea for our place. <laughs> Still such a phenomenal story, yeah. especially considering what you've done since to have that very iconic Maryland flavor. Yeah. That that is actually your suggestion, like yeah. your family's suggestion that led to Dead Rise, this yep. beer that I'll admit is, uh, as much as I love Old Bay, maybe not the first thing I think of in a beer. Mm-hmm. It's actually kind of cool that that uh, has such deep roots, especially to this part of Maryland. Yep. So tell me a little bit about then, from the experiences there at Flying Dog to here. So 85 years, three generations of right. this family. Right. My wife, who grew up in this county, uh, came to the the camp to mm-hmm. learn horseback riding. Mm-hmm. Why a brewery two years ago? Yeah, how did that come about? Yeah, well, you know, um, I spent four years at, at Flying Dog, and um, you know, I could continue to learn things, but was kind of growing out of that, and I was kind of in the process of looking for other things, and kind of right, you know, kind of dovetailed in in with that was, um, you know, the Maryland Farm Brewery license had been written. Um, you know, Tom Barris at Milk House was rocking and rolling, you know, Manor Hill was kind of on the, on the come and, um, you know, it's, uh, myself, my wife, uh, her cousin, cousin's husband, and, um, the fifth owner is, uh, basically, um, the, the, uh, you know, my father-in-law's assistant on the farm. Uh, he's kind of the farm manager and, um, you know, uh, her parents kind of came to us and said, what do you guys want to do? What's the next generation want to do on the farm? And, and, you know, we already had a brewer in the, you know, in the works and, um, you know, the whole farm is in ag preservation. So, uh, without that farm brewery piece, we wouldn't be able to put a, you know, we can't get a, the same license that flying dog has, um, and put that piece here. So, um, yeah, I mean, we all kind of looked at each other. We looked at, Christmas trees and cattle and things like that. But, um, you know, we all like beer to, to, to varying different extents. And, and, um, you know, um, the farm's always been a gathering spot for, you know, as you said, your wife went here, like it's been a, it's been a place, place that hosts a lot of people throughout the year all the time. And now we're just kind of, it, it fit in well, you know, her, uh, my in-laws were, were very supportive and, um, you know, it's, it's been coming with its challenges, but, um, it's fun to, you know, it's, we welcome people like your wife back to the, back to the farm almost every weekend, you know, there's such a big alumni base with the camp. So, um, it's fun to have them as customers now too. <laughs> sure. And it seems like there's sort of a, a similar generational shift with other sort of institu- institutions within this part of the county. Uh, Larry Land, who I know you've done some work with in terms of ingredients, uh, Butler's Orchard, of that same conversation happening mm-hmm. of the next generation coming up. What do you want to do with this? How do you want to pay forward this history into something that's responsive to now, yeah. to, to this moment and what you're interested in? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's tough for farms that, you know, um, we're in ag preservation. We're not going to piece off the land to kind of make money for, for the next, the next people coming. So, um, the idea of, of of using your land in a in a um, you know and being able to capitalize on that is is tough um, and yeah everybody's doing it different and um, for us it for us it works you know it's um, like I said it's it's come with its challenges because we get some a fair amount of people out here from time to time but uh, yeah it's been the it's clearly a need you know there's there's um, 
we have good beer, but the amount of people that are coming sometimes is it's it dovetails with you know being um, on such a beautiful spot and uh, people wanted to be outside and, and hanging out in, in nature. So, well, you're not relying on that alone though. There there are other breweries, class five or farm breweries, that are doing more, at least uh, up to a certain point over their own bar top. You've been distributing fairly early on. Mm -hmm. Definitely the first Wiradaka beers mm -hmm. that I had were mm -hmm. not here mm -hmm. at the, the tasting room. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, we, um, I don't know where we'll finish. You know, we're right around the 50-50 on-site and off-site kind of thing. Um, you know, we sell a lot more on-site, spring, summer, and fall, and then kind of the winter we kind of uh, push, you know, distro a little bit harder. You know, um, our tasting room can't grow much more um man we need to put like a parking garage out there or something you know uh so you know we're, we're kind of peeking out the tasting room obviously like on on bad weather days we could we have room to grow there um but moving forward the model for growth would be you know that's that's where the growth will be with it will be in your distro beer so yeah we have draft only um distro and um you know we're everywhere from you know, Baltimore, a really small presence in Baltimore. Um, you know, most of our beer is rolling through Montgomery County um, and Frederick. Uh, we sell some to, and some of the neighboring counties, but basically, you know, a little bit in Baltimore, um, you know, Catersburg, Potomac, Bethesda, uh, Frederick, and then up to Sykesville. We have a few accounts up there. So that's kind of that central Maryland kind of um, foot, footprint right now. And, um, you know, our, our model has been we want to be deeper than wide. Um, if we move into Baltimore, I don't want to move in there now because we have beer. And then in the spring and summer, when we don't have beer and tell them, we, you know, we build all these nice uh, client base and then run out of product. So that's, you know, we're kind of in that kind of in that spot right now. Are you self-distributing still? Self-distributing, yeah. Um, which is, you know, um, we're happy to do. You know, we get a, um, we can keep a, eye on our product you know we kind of um you know just kind of make sure we know where all the beer is we can you know it's going straight from our cooler to their cooler um all that feels nice we're young and we're small when we are older and bigger i'm sure i'll be singing a different tune but right now we're we're managing that and it's um you know of all the hats that i wear that i didn't think i'd wear uh you know running logistics and delivery routes and things like that that's fine and it's fun you know but it's another one of the hats you have to wear well at a certain point there's there's a cap involved in that mm. in the state where if you go beyond a certain point are you thinking to that point or are you still well below the cap where self-distribution is going to be your future for the next foreseeable span. Yeah, I think we'll be, I think, and this thing go crazy, I think we'll be self-distributing for at least the next, you know, three to five years. Um, yes, we are well under that cap. Um, we'd have a much different brewery and a lot more stainless if we were getting close to that cap. Um, you know, but you never know, like, you know, say in two years we buy a canning line and then you see our beer in cans. I don't know if we'll be self-destroying that or not. I guess we just haven't really... I think we'll self-distro as long as we can, you know, until it becomes, um, you know, until, until it just becomes not a good way to use our time, I guess. Well, and it makes sense in terms of the location that you have, the context for, even if it's seasonally dependent for sharing that beer, that outbound sales may be an equal if lesser portion than what you're able to do here. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, you know, it just we just allow to keep our eyes on the product a bit more, you know. I, it, I hate for our, you know, I mean, to work so hard on some nice hoppy beer and then it sit in the, maybe not a warm cooler, but maybe like a 60-degree cooler, you know, that would be, uh, that would hurt me a little bit. <laughs> so <laughs> Sure, sure. I, I don't think there's a brewer who would disagree with that. Yeah. Speaking of that product, can you talk a bit about, and I think you, you already kind of said a certain piece about kind of where your inspiration comes from, but sort of the philosophy behind where Daca Spears in particular. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, so we're a farm brewery, if, if people don't know. Um, that means, you know, that um, the beers that we make have to have some ingredients from the farm in them in every batch. Um, you know, for us, uh, we have 200 Cascade plants. Um, Cascade hot plants. Um, we have uh, honeybees that we use the honey uh, in our little dam, honey wheat. Um, and then we grow herbs. We have our, our biggest selling beer is our Beecher IPA. That's a centennial based IPA finished with lemon verbena uh, that we grow um, here on the farm. And then uh, in the summer, uh, spring, summer, and fall, we run a, um, a Belgian whip beer called White Flag that we rotate, you know, what adjunct gets used in it, be it. Um, herbs or fruit, um, you know, and, you know, our philosophy with that has been that if we can't grow it, we're using other local farms. You know, we are a big farm, but we also have, you know, between 70, 70 and 80 horses on the property at all times and they all need turned out and pasture. So you won't see us covering any fields in more hops or grain or wheat or anything. Um, so, or apple trees. So, you know, what we, our philosophy has been, if we can't grow it here, then we get it from another local farm. You mentioned Laraland. Um, we've used Butler's, Butler's Orchard for um, a lot of fruit. Uh, we get some. We get our apple cider from uh, Boggers, which is up in uh, Westminster. Um, you know, so that's been our, a little bit our philosophy. If we can't supply it, we need to make sure we're supporting the farms that you know other Maryland farms that are that are doing that supply side a bit better. So, and you know, we want to be ahead of the, you know. As a farm brewery, I want to, it's tough to make everything, you know, I'm not going to go forage. We, we have a 10-barrel brewery, you know, and so to be, to be, um, you know, to be profitable, we got to make a certain amount of beer, and I want it to be of a certain quality. I don't think anybody would, you know, I don't want the quality of the product to suffer for the use of a farm ingredient. Um, so our beers become much more agriculturally based in the spring, summer, and fall during the growing season. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be a farm brewery that, I don't want to be a brewery on a farm. I want to be, you know, using using the, the farm brewery the way it should be. I'd like to get more experimental with our saisons. You know, I'd like to have a, you know, a really nice flagship, you know, really nice farmhouse saison, you know. Um, I'd love just to get more, um, you know, Brett, you know, uh, you know, Brett Saison's different kind of experiment with yeast like that. We just haven't got quite, got quite there as far as, um, you know, as far as being, making sure I make enough uh, regular beer to pay for the experimental beer. So that's kind of ho hopefully where we're moving toward. Do you find that there are challenges? I, I know that for a farm brewery license, you have to use local ingredients. Are there challenges specific to that? Do you feel like there's something better or more flavorful or something that you're called to try to tease out much more out of those local ingredients because 
they're grown here or you're going to a nearby farm to get them? Um, you know, I'd say the challenge is just sometimes logistics, you know, like if we're using, you know, for instance, um, you can buy aseptic raspberry purees from Oregon, Oregon fruit that is, that are designed for brewing. They're liquid. You can either pump them in from the bottom or pump them in the top. Like you, they ship to you, they sit on your shelf and then you add them when you want to add them. Um, the way we are doing fruit, for instance, is we are, um, you know, we go to the farm, we pick it up, it's picked that morning, we, we go pick it up then, um, and we process it, we run it through basically like a um, commercial food mill, pushes it through a screen, makes a puree, gets the seeds out, um, and then we bring that up to about 180 degrees and hold it there for about 10 minutes. So we're doing our version of pasteurization um because we're using that fruit all of our fruits going in kind of toward the end of fermentation to kind of maintain some of that fruit uh flavor but ferment out much of the sugar um you know i don't want to make keg bombs or bottle bombs or anything but um you know so that part right there that's labor intensive um and expensive you know much more expensive than if we bought you know 50 or 100 pounds of uh raspberry puree from Oregon fruit you know but um again i'd much rather do that. And I think the customer is like appreciates that, you know, and is starting to learn that about us that, um, and again, we're young and we're small. Like if we doubled inside and I'm not saying we're doing that, but like in five years, things are going great and maybe we need a new brewery. Like now we're doing 20 gallon, 20 barrel batches. And now we need 200 or 300 pounds of fruit. Like I'd like to think that we're still going to do it that way. We're going to upgrade our, you know, our food mill, but, um, it's easy to do at this size and we're, we're taking advantage of it. And you feel like you said it, it's more apparent, like your patron notices that difference versus a larger brewery that uses a similar ingredient, but that's maybe pre-processed before it got to the brewery at a, at an industrial scale. I mean, how much do you notice? Uh, I think that the customer appreciates that, Oh, butlers, we were just there last week, you know, during the pumpkin fest, you know, or whatever. Like, I think that they, you know, we're doing it because we feel like it's the right thing to do. We're doing it less because of a customer base. You know, we're, we're doing it because we think it's the right thing to do. We're not really, I'm not saying that, you know, our fruit is better or worse than what can be grown on the West Coast. We're just doing it because they're growing the fruit. If they have enough to sell us that, then we're going to go ahead and support them. So, But it sounds like maybe, is that a beer you would rather have? Oh, I mean, like so, whether you made it or not. Oh, right, like. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, um, for uh, you know, we're on fruit. Um, Belgian whipped beer with fruit and that's not sweet is pretty tasty, I think. You know, we made a black raspberry, and I went way too crazy with the black raspberry. It was like electric purple, and it was almost, you know, less beer and, and a bit more fruit juice, but that's kind of what's in right now with some of these burly oak beers that are coming out, you know. So, like, um, you know. Yeah, I love, you know, I mean, experimenting with different fruits is awesome. I wish, you know, let's get some passion fruit growers out there. <laughs> you know, like I, I wish we had, we had some crazier fruit. Like I had a guava beer two weeks ago and I'd love to use it, but we're not going to use guava because there's no, you know, no guava's being grown in Maryland. So, you know, so it's a bit of, it's a bit of that. So, um, you know, I'd like to use, we haven't done a, uh, watermelon beer yet we haven't um, you know and the herbs you know that's our other kind of thing that we grow on the farm you know um, I had a beer uh, uh, it's like it was a collab from dogfish it was a it was a 
herb saison and it was amazing so um you know they can we can grow herbs here you know not year round but we can we just harvested like a ton of lemon verbena before it froze so we have we're sitting on a bunch of herbs so we can use that throughout the winter and herbs are so, so easy to grow in big volumes you don't need a ton for 300 gallons of beer to to get a nice flavor so um yeah no those and you know that thai, we do a thai basil belgian whipped beer and that's you know pretty t- those those flavors go well together so um yeah no i i like experimenting with it i mean like i said cooking is kind of where you know i enjoy cooking too and and it's once you're on that level and you start talking about things you're adding to the beer then it's much like cooking so and herbs i have to imagine that's something where if you're getting it relatively fresh so for like a home cook Mm -hmm. by comparison growing their arm herbs be able to go straight from the plant into the pot yep that notion of going straight from the farm into the beer there that's got to have an appreciable difference in terms of uh, the taster's impression in the glass. Yeah, for sure. You know, that lemon verbena addition that we do to the beecher definitely, you know, I notice it before and after, you know, Um, I notice it when it's been in the tank a little bit shorter or a little bit longer, just depending on what beers need to move. So, um, yeah, no, I think the customer, you know, every now and again, we get a customer that comes up, oh, we just have a, uh, man, we just had a, a different herb beer. I think, oh yeah, it was like time and sage and like you know you read it and we always have the customers say uh that don't know about that but they try it and it's you know and, and it's uh you're always gonna find something different and experimental hopefully you know we have a peach goes on right now um and that's that's been pretty great and we just ended up a, a coffee ipa and it, it's a blonde coffee ipa so like uh you know that was that's fun you know part of the as a brewer I like to kind of trick the customer, like when they ask for a sip of the coffee IPA and it's a blonde beer, they're kind of really surprised, but then they taste it and it's hoppy and it's got some coffee flavor. So, um, you know, it's, it's part of the part of eating and drinking is, you know, eating and drinking with your eyes. And so I, I enjoy playing tricks with the drinker that way, too. Is there a single beer that you would recommend or is that going to depend depending on when people come in? Yeah, um, it's funny. I. Uh, I just was told about a, a guy in our tasting room that is looking for our Belgian triple because he thought it was on, which is our, our Gidi, our Belgian triple. So we go, we kind of, I love Belgian beer and we brew more Belgian beer in the winter. Um, our Belgian triple will be out the Friday. It'll be out Black Friday. Um, and that is amazing. It's 9%. It's pretty dry, you know, very, you know, very uh, phenolic and a lot of Belgian, you know, a lot of Belgian influence and, uh, I, if if it wasn't nine percent, I'd drink more of it. But it's very tasty, so um, yeah, I would recommend that um, right around Thanksgiving. And then um, you know we had some pumpkin beers that kind of just pulled through, and those were pretty nice. You know, yeah, I mean it, they rotate. You know, they rotate, and I enjoy that part part of it. Um, we have a runaway series of beers uh, that we make in the in the winter. It's called Runaway because my wife runs away from the from the winter and goes through Florida for two months. And when I drive her down to Florida, I drive back and I drive back Florida fruit. So we use that Florida fruit, Florida citrus, um, and in some double IPAs. And so, um, I, I, when those are out, I definitely recommend those cause they just come and go quickly, you know, but, um, yeah, we're, we're rotating beer. And, and I think right now what I would probably recommend is either the coffee stout or the, uh, we have a Belgian double in there Maud, our Belgian double. I think I'd recommend both those two cause it's that kind of weather right now. I enjoy the fact that uh, Grumpkin is not 
just your typical sort of pumpkin spice beer. Mm. That, for one, it's a dark beer. Mm-hmm. For another, you smoke the pumpkin. Yeah, so you did. get a lot more complexity, something much more interesting. To me, that seems like that's definitely compatible with what you're saying about like that food inspiration, that culinary inspiration. Yeah, you know, I was I was trying to, you know, I wanted to use pumpkins. Pumpkins are a local ingredient. We grow them here, and we buy some from um, Laraland and, and Butler's. Um, I wanted to use pumpkins, but I wanted the pumpkins to have a flavor. So, and and uh, a guy on the property, my um, you know, who's in the family, he. Uh, he has a big smoker and does a, you know, knows his way around his smoker pretty well. And so, yeah, we smoked uh, 200 pounds of pumpkin, um, you know, for a 20 barrel batch, and uh, they popped pretty good. Yeah, they, they they brought a lot of smoke flavor. So that's a nice way to be like, there's no smoke malt, there's no liquid smoke, there's the, any smoke you get is from pumpkins. It was a way to make sure that. Yeah, there are pumpkins in it, and here's the flavor that they're coming. You know, because when you have pumpkin beer, you're not pumpkin doesn't have a pumpkin doesn't have flavor. It's a you know it's a kind of just a you know just a starch. But um, you know now when you say there are real pumpkins, it's this flavor that's kind of fun. We did you know we I don't know if you caught this. It kind of went pretty quick. We did a, um, a pumpkin spice beer. It was a pumpkin spice blonde with coffee, kind of like for the. PSL drinkers out there. It was kind of a, a beer for them. Um, again, fooling the, fooling the senses. So it was a coffee pumpkin beer that was blonde. Um, I'm kind of really playing around with that, that blonde coffee idea. Um, that was very much your traditional pumpkin pie spice. You know, so we kind of have this year, we kind of made two different types of pumpkin beers for the pump, the, the pumpkin spice drinker. So, and, some liked both, some liked one, and that's the other. And I think next year we're going to release them in different order and play with people a little bit that way. So, um, I don't know. Yeah. Again, we're small enough and nimble enough that that's what we can be experimenting right now. Can you walk me through the brewery a bit? You mentioned it's a 10 barrel brewery. The challenges of working at that scale, how you set that up coming from Flying Dog, which is a much bigger brewery, and thinking about how to utilize the space here to serve all the styles that you've been talking about and kind of the the way your beer has moved from the brewery out to the people who consume it. Sure, yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so we're a 10-barrel brewery. Um, we have 80 barrels of fermentation, 20 barrels of uh, bright tank storage. Um, we have, you know, we get all our grain whole, so we mill, um, you know, and we're getting some of our grain from um, Chris Mullinex Malting Company, which is... Uh, in Howard County, so 25%, uh, we're at 30, 30% now. 30% of all of our um, bulk grain is grown and malted within like 10 miles from us, which is, you know, we only hope to increase that. And I think we're going to switch over our Saison to 100% local uh, malt. If there's a beer to do a local malt with, it would be a Saison. Um, yeah, um, and then, you know, all our, luckily enough, and this was just out of, sheer happenstance, but uh, Flying Dog put in a 15-barrel pilot system, um, you know, and I maybe was in and running for a year and a half before I left, um, so I was able to get some terms on that, um, you know, and I think at that final year, this this idea had started to go, you know, was kind of starting to move forward, so I was able to kind of take some notes and figure out what I like, what I don't like, and, um, you know, yeah, so that was really nice to be able to... Um, 
I don't know, just kind of brew on that size. I never brewed on that size. Flying Dogs is a 50-barrel system, so that's five. Well, it's actually a 50-barrel with two kettle, so that's five times the size of our current brewery. And those are different, you know, um, scaling, and there's not much that scales right at that size. Um, but when I saw the 15-barrel run in and got some turns on that, that was um, very helpful. Um, so, and ours is like a mini, our brewery is like a mini, 50 barrel system from Flying Dog. It's got a lot of the same uh, pipe work um, in the water ton, really. Um, you know, it's just a two vessel. Um, I'd like to add a whirlpool to kind of, um, that would buy us another half hour, you know, probably buy us another 45 minutes. But um, yeah, and then we ferment everything in, in, um, in stainless. We haven't um, introduced any bread or lacto in the stainless. Um, Again, I'd love to do like a Brett Saison, but I'm just a little wary on doing that. Um, we don't roll much of our beers through the bright tanks. We use, I use the bright tank as a, um, you know, as a, uh, for instance, in the coffee stout, we add the coffee to the fermenter. Once it's coffee enough, if that beer doesn't get kegged, it needs to come off the coffee. So I'll just pump that off the coffee or whatever ingredient. If it's an ingredient that's gone in that can't come out, um, but I can, but it's in bags. I can move it off into the bright tank and, and then empty that fermenter and clean that fermenter. So that's kind of how we're doing that with the ingredients. Um, a lot of our ingredients go on the cold side, um, all the kind of special herbs or, you know, we obviously dry hop just like any other brewery would dry hop. Um, yeah, now they just keg right in those fermenters and goes right into the walk-in. You know, we just use, a, a, you know, gravity and time for clarifying. We don't filter any of our beer again. We're young and small enough that we can do that. Um, yeah, and, and it goes right to the consumer. So, um, you know, everything's usually really fresh. Most of our batches are, you know, I can, so I've turned, man, I think I've turned a tank in nine days before, <laughs> um, which is not what I want to do, but sometimes you do what you need to do. Um, and most of our beers kind of average in the, you know, the 15 to 21 day time frame. Our loggers get uh, 60 days. Um, so, they're really well lagered and um, you're really nice, nice time. Again, we're slow enough and have enough space that we can do that. Um, yeah, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of the setup. You know, we've added, we started with 50 barrels. Um, so we've added 50 barrels of fermentation. So we've added 110 and 120 um, since we've, since we started. And, you know, I think, again, it, you know, we're strapped for beer in the summer, for sure, this past summer, and I'm sure next summer we will be strapped for beer. Um, if we were to open up Baltimore, really pump more beer through Baltimore, we'd need some more space. So we're kind of, you know, more space, more fermentation space means another, maybe another brewer or maybe another salesperson to go out there. You know, like we're trying to be, we're in that weird range where we'd like to stay small, stay profitable, keep the footprint kind of small and just make a smaller profit, but have to work less hard to make that smaller profit you know if we're bigger and bigger then all of a sudden you're working just as hard and and you got more people to you know more people to pay and, and more ingredients to pay for and all the things but uh, yeah that's kind of where we're at where we're at right now the county seems to be at an interesting inflection point saints row just opened true respites on track to open uh closer into dc um probably february march time frame uh over in silver spring Parallel World and Astrolab yeah. alongside the Denizens. How do you feel about the state of beer? And you're missing here? one. There's another brewery opening around the corner from us. If there weren't trees, you could see it from the hill up here. Really? <laughs> so, um, you know, um, I think it's great. You know, I think that, 
You know, I think the county and, you know, Maryland in general is probably a little underserved. Um, it's reaching the point where it's probably getting right. Um, you know, I think you're going to see, um, you're just, competition's already steep and it's just going to continue to get steeper. Um, you know, people are going to continue to drink local, but they're not going to drink local if it's not good. You know what I mean? They're going to drink quality, quality local. Um, and I really think the room for growth is, you know, we, we get a lot of, as many breweries get a lot of breweries, get a lot of customers that come in and say, I drink Bud Light, I drink Blue Moon, what do you have for me? And if we can start to get those people, then that's where the real growth is. Um, you know, so that's taking a little bit, but when I see customers come out and then bring their parents out to our place, that's really when it, you know, and maybe, and if they're, we get so many people that drive by on this road that if they can know that they can start turning in here on Thursday afternoon and bring a growler home, that's, that's, I think where the, um, that's what will make it so that the number of burgers we have aren't, everybody's getting, getting, making, making good money. I think that, um, the reason we're kind of going slower or kind of pacing ourselves is we don't want a lot of debt and we don't really mind, you know, leaving a little bit of beer on the table if that means that in two years, if there's some sort of ingredient crisis or, uh, you know, laws change and all of a sudden we can only have 20 people in our tasting room at a time, you know, then we're not quite, you know, not quite in a bad spot. So what I, what I would hesitate is, um, you know, I think I see a lot of places putting in 20s. You know, I, I think I get a little worried when you start doing ten, something, anything much over 15 or 20 barrel. Because if you're in a 20 barrel brewery, you're making a lot of time at a, at a shot. And that brewery is not making money when it's not brewing beer, you know. So, um, I, you know, I worry a little bit when when I see places open and then package and then, you know, then all of a sudden there's beer everywhere and that's good. That looks good on the books for the first like quarter when you make that first sell of all your cans to all the places that sell beer. But you really, you know, I, I know I've made a good beer if people order too, you know, so like if cans are pulling through, then all of a sudden, that's why we're not in cans yet. Cause I want to make sure that the, the, the push for cans is, is uh, strong and going to be sustained. You know, we don't want to put beer out there and have it sit. So, the impression that I've had of this place pretty much from when I learned of it opening a couple of years ago, too, is that the draw to come out, that's got to factor into that as well. It's yep. like if you are if you are feeding the very thirsty Baltimore market, are you sacrificing the custom that has helped you get to the business at that point that does come out here? Even on a cold day like today, it's gorgeous, but it's cold right. and there's still people in the tap room. and. Yep. As we kind of wended our way to find a quiet spot to talk, it was actually starting to, to pick up a little bit. Yep. So that's got to be part of the calculus too, right? In terms of making sure that you're not sacrificing sort of what got you to that point in order to go that much further. Yeah, I mean, our, t our tap room is our most important spot. I say that we only have six beers on tap right now, which is totally my fault. Um, you know, yeah, we never want to run out of beer there. Um, our goal, you know, we are distroing, you know, as much as, you know, we, we have a limit every week, but, um, you know, our goal is to ha have people come out here, have a great time, um, enjoy the weather, enjoy just being out in, in the farm, you know, maybe 20 minutes from their house. And so that when you go to, you know, a nice beer bar and they, you see our beer on tap, maybe you'll buy one 
just because you remember the good time you had out there. Um, and then maybe go buy another because it's good, you know. So that's kind of our uh, been our model with distro canning. There, the world of cans is, uh, you know, can and just package beer in general. It's a tough shelves are full, you know, and and if your beer sits there, it's not getting any better, you know. And so I don't want someone to from out of the area or someone new to Wardaka, oh, and they have a package and buy it, and then it's not right, you know. So that's a little that's a little my worry there. Well, certainly when you talk about the fact that you're not pasteurizing, filtering, it sounds like you may not even be uh, finding on the cold side. Like we do, those, we, yeah. those extra things that you would have to do if you were to do that right for the distribution to ensure, like, you're right, it's not going to be as good as if you get it here in the tasting room. But even, like, that extra investment, if you have to pay attention to that to have a certain amount of outbound sales that might sit in whatever condition, like, that's, that's extra work. That's yeah. work that you don't have to do if you're selling it here or through your self-distribution where you know that it's going to be cold all throughout the distribution chain. Yep, and, and that's, what, that's what is nice about the... Um, you know, the can release thing that the breweries are doing is that you can move a lot of your product one shot right there and then the customer is responsible for it. You know, there's no middleman of, of how's that beer being handled um, before that gets to the customer. Um, yeah, I mean, my goal for small format would be, you know, I think, you know, every, everything Sierra Nevada makes, either keg or, or bottles, is um, bottle conditioned, package conditioned, and that, you know, eats up that oxygen and then you know naturally carbonates and that's a beautiful way to do it because you know um beer's worst nightmare is oxygen and if you can get the yeast to kind of metabolize that then you got a nice shelf stable product so i'd love to be in um you know bottle conditioned uh either you know 500 mil or 750 mil you know kind of um, different formats to uh that's the way and then you can ship that up here can sit on your shelf you know you know that's that's the best that's what I like. <laughs> well, that makes sense what you were saying about your fondness of Belgian styles. That's definitely a style that as a live beer, as a bottle conditioned beer, like that's very much part of its character. Yep. So that makes a lot more sense that to see you doing in the coming years rather than getting into canning, even with a mobile cannery and doing that end of distribution, crafting beer specific to the experience that you just described sounds brilliant yeah yeah and there's not you know there's not a ton of people doing it you know and i think that's and i i'm sure you know the uh, yeah i may be underselling the, the population but many of the people don't understand that about bottle conditioning but i would feel better and i think the customers would appreciate the quality if it was bottle conditioned you know that's the it takes a little bit more work and dangerous you can have bottle like i said you can have bottle bombs and things like that but um I do have some experience, you know, uh, Flying Dogs Gonzo, Barrel Age Gonzo, and basically everything they did in, when I was there, everything they did in 750s was bottle conditioned, so I got to see that a little bit up close, and uh, pretty confident that we could, uh, you know, that we could dial that process in pretty pretty good. So I don't know much about bottle conditioning, so I'm learning about uh, bottle conditioning sour beers, um, you know, depending on pH, um, and just total titratable acidity, um, you can run into some some you know yeast won't be real happy in that acidic environment so that is something that i need to (laughs) brush up on before we start doing any of that interesting technical challenges to be sure but it also seems like because you do have that relationship with about a 50 50 split in-house versus outbound that you know if you have some cold storage adjacent to the tasting room you could start the conversation there say like here's this interesting bottle condition thing what do you think yep 
Yeah, no, it's um, that's yeah. I I love to have a bottle conditioned sour beer or a bottle bottle conditioned Brit saison. That's definitely will be will be churning when when we get that going. So I'm excited for <laughs> if and when that happens. <laughs> Is there anything else I haven't asked that you'd like people to know about Wardaka and what you're doing here? You know, um. A lot of people don't know it stands for Washington Recreational Day Camp uh, is what WARDOC stands for. And, you know, it's a, you know, we're up here in northern Montgomery County. Uh, we're about 10 minutes north of Olney. Um, you know, we're open, you know, four days a week. And, you know, if you want the slower days, come on Thursday and Friday. And if you want much more of the kind of festive uh, family kind of party atmosphere is usually on a Saturday and Sunday when it's when it's beautiful out or when it's just not raining. <laughs> um yeah, um, it's a third generation farm and, and we're going to be here for a long time. And, you know, we really, you know, we're, if you haven't had our beer yet, uh, we're growing slow, um, but we're going to, you know, continue nice, nice, steady, slow, slow growth. And, um, you know, we like the Jester King model. We like the 3000 barrel, you know, Jester King, I think caps at 3000 and um, we're, we'll do like about a third of that this year. Um, and uh, I think they do much of it on site they're probably at the 90 percent on site and 10 percent off but um you know i i don't we don't want to turn into a factory we don't want to make the make the farm um not a farm you know we want to keep it you know keep it the way it's been uh, we've added lights so we, we now like even when it's dark out you can come out and see us when it's we now add, <laughs> added some lights and um yeah, we're getting ready for two years. So thank you so much for the support from the community, and um, yeah, it's been a it's been a fun run. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the uh, episode is probably going to come out just after. So hopefully, listeners will come to this episode having come out to your anniversary you party, you and the week later, learn much more than they learned at the party about the the backstory. What other exciting things are coming up that you want to talk about? Yeah. So um, you know, our our second year anniversary, December 9th, Um Thank you for coming. <laughs> if you came, um, you know we release um, our Belgian triple. We'll be out Black Friday, uh, and we'll definitely be out by the time this podcast. And that'll be going all winter. Um, and then you know we do a winter spice tail called Blizzard, which is named after one of our horses here. Um, and uh, that's a kind of a winter spiced, uh, kind of winter warmer ale, um, dark dark winter warmer ale, like in the six percent range. Um, yeah, we'll do that. And then, yeah, look for those double IPAs. Um, and I'm going to try to get my hands on passion fruit and make a passion fruit goza uh, when I'm down in Florida. I just learned that passion fruit is grown in Florida. So uh, my wife drives nine horses to Florida in the, in the winter, and I'll be driving back with the truck and loaded up with citrus from Florida. So um, keep an eye out for those uh, runaway series beers in the winter. So, yeah, that's. I, yeah, we don't have too you know we're kind of past event season it was wild and crazy but we're happy to we got one party to plan and then we're turning to christmas and, and it's january so we're, we're all right on the events excellent thank you so much for joining me today keith thank really you for having me it. Yeah. Sure. that's it for this episode thank you for listening in the next dialogue of a peculiar character I'll be joined by Phil Muth and Kenny Borkman from Brookville Beer Farm. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to feedback at peculiarcharacter.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please help spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Please consider supporting the show financially by visiting patreon.com 
That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash peculiar character and become a backer. Patrons enjoy special behind-the-scene access and bonus content. The support of my patrons is greatly appreciated. Until next time, chase what calls you. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license. Theme music is Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.